if you have a Bible with you, you could be turning to John's Gospel and chapter 13, um, which we'll begin looking at today. Uh, John chapter 13, and we're going to look at the first uh, 17, 17 verses. It's one of those days where looking at the clock is a little bit confusing. Right, okay. Here we go. Uh, John chapter 13, the first 17 verses say this. It was just before the Passover festival. Uh, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Just going to pray again as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of knowing Jesus. Lord God, all that you've revealed to us uh, about your amazing uh, good news. And Lord, as we, as we approach Lord, the events that are closer to the death of Jesus, Lord, I just pray, God, for your special help, Lord, the help of your Holy Spirit to draw near to you. Whether this is familiar territory or not, we're kind of on profound, in a profound area. And, uh, and Lord, I, I pray, Lord, have our, have our heart's attention. Lord, help, help us as we consider your word and see where it leads us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in getting to this point in John's gospel, um, as Richard brought us last week in chapter 12, we kind of arrived at a, a turning point, a transition in, a, in the first 
half, if you like, the first 11, 12 chapters, we're seeing revealed to us just who Jesus is uh, by virtue of some amazing signs uh, that he does. So we've seen a whole number of, of incredible miracles. And then it's kind of unpacked for us just what that means, what we're to understand about who Jesus is. And now um, in this next part of the book, the second half, we're, we're building up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, so the, the, the first half of the book is covering years of Jesus' ministry. Now we're covering days, uh, the remaining days of his, uh, of his life as the Passover festival uh, draws near. So many times through the book, he, he's been saying, uh, John's been recounting, my hour has not yet come. But now, in the events that we just saw last, last week in John chapter 12, the, the time has come. Jesus knows his time has arrived. The hour has arrived for him to be glorified, which will mean being crucified on, uh, on the cross. So, around, you know, so just days away is what's going to happen. And so as, as this turning point has, has taken place, John is choosing to draw special attention uh, to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. How, how are we to understand Jesus washing the disciples' feet? What does John want us to get from that? What difference should that make to us? Um, we're going to see uh, four things pushing the boat out this morning. Uh, we're going to look through uh, this passage and see, I think, four things that, that God wants us to understand and apply in our lives. And the first is this, drawn from really the, uh, the very early phrases, where we're told Jesus showed them the full extent of his, uh, of his love. Having loved his own, this is just the, the end of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's in this NIV translation. Another translation you might be looking at might say he showed them the full extent of his love. Which is fascinating, again, in the first part of the book, we'd see that the focus is on God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's, uh, through Christ, doing these amazing signs and wonders to draw people to that response of faith. Now, just days away from his death, his focus, in a way, turns to his, turns to his disciples. Um, it's going to be their responsibility. It's going to be their call in God to go and make more, more disciples. At this point, Jesus is focused on the one uh, on the ones that he has, and he's wanting to prepare them for what's uh, to come. So it's, it's remarkable to consider all that Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Uh, later on, we're told that he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. Knowing all of that, we're told he loved his own who were in the world. He showed them the full extent of his love, or as it's put here, he loved them to the last. Which could sound intriguing, but reminds me uh, of some verses I love uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. This is, this is Paul's prayer for us. This is Paul's prayer for the believers in, in Ephesus that, uh, that this would be true of us. Uh, so in, in Ephesians 3, I'll read from verse Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So turning back to John, I wonder, John spends time shedding light on what happened when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Why? To show us something utterly wonderful about his love. And, and I wonder, have, have you pondered the full extent? Have you, have you pondered the dimensions of, of God's love? How high it is, how wide it is, how deep it goes, and how long it lasts. Jesus will say later on, Great, greater love has no one than this, that he'd lay down his life for his friends. We know that in Jesus dying on the cross, we're seeing the very, the very pinnacle, the greatest act of love. It'd be utterly remarkable that someone should lay their life down for a friend. And we could look in scripture in Romans and say it'd be it's so rare that someone would lay down their life even for a righteous person, possibly for a good person. No one lays their life down for, for enemies. We see on the cross the full extent, the amazing height of God's love. And I, I can remember personally being bowled over when, when that hit home, when I, when I realised like I could say this in fullness, but like I realised, God's amazing love. Dealing with my sin, forgiving me of all my uncleanness, and putting on me a stamp of, of acceptance and love, being drawn into the family. That's, that's how kind of John starts the gospel. You know, many didn't receive him, but to those who did, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just kind of tolerated, but embraced. That is the height of love. Well, I wonder if you've considered as well how wide God's love is. Because sometimes what people can say is, well, I, I could understand God loving that person. I could, I could understand God loving, loving you. I can see that knowing God's love, it, it helps you in some way, but I, I just can't see that it extends to me. And maybe that's layered with, with kind of guilt or just feeling, feeling distant. Maybe if I'd had your upbringing, maybe if I'd grown up in that country, maybe if something else had happened in my life, I, it might feel a bit closer. And, and what the gospel does is remind us of just how wide is the love of God revealed in Christ. It reaches even to you. It reaches even to me. And when Jesus was on the cross and a, and a, and a fellow executed criminal who knew that he deserved the outcome of his punishment, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's even as Jesus' arms were extended on the cross, he says, well, my love even reaches to you. My, my love reaches to the guy next to me on the other cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I could understand how those guys, understand how she might be in receipt of your love, but me, I can't really believe it. And we, we ponder the, the amazing 
breadth, the width, just how wide is God's love that it can reach to someone, even if they feel like I'm too far away. You're not. You are not too far away for God to put his arm around you, uh, even right now. And God's love, God's love is deep. So that if like the psalmist, you might, you might cry out, you know, I, I waited patiently for the Lord and he, he heard my cry. He lifted me from the miry pits. He grabbed me and he drew me up and he set my feet on solid ground. That's what the psalmists are saying about, about God. I was, I was in a messed up place. And maybe that's by virtue of, uh, of things done to you, circumstances that were out of your control. Or maybe sometimes like the psalmist, he might say, yeah, out of the depths I cried to you. And I know it's, 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 I'm down in that pit because of the consequences of my own actions, not because of someone else. And to know that the depth of God's love is that he reaches down and pulls you up. That God's love goes deep. But God's love also goes long. And there is a distinct hint of that here in John 13. He loved them to the very end. They've been with Jesus for years. And what's remarkable is that knowing what's about to happen, Jesus didn't lose his focus on loving his own, on loving those who'd chosen to follow him and received, who had received him. Knowing all that was about to happen, his focus was utterly on loving his disciples. That's why I think we're here round the table with Jesus, who was washing the feet of his disciples. And maybe that's the case. If you've, if you've had great revelation of God's love before today, and, and like those disciples, you could say, I've been walking with Jesus a long time. Sometimes you can kind of look back over your shoulder over the events of life stretching back years and think, well, is, it, is that the same now as when I first received it? Or perhaps uncertain about the future or maybe aware there are some challenges to come you're kind of you're looking ahead and the path of your life bends around the corner and you kind of think what then what will happen there we're seeing here jesus love that goes around the next bend who knows what's going to happen and goes ahead of you and his love for his people, come what may down the road, will be just as fresh, powerful, and life-transforming as it is the very first moment you received it and went, wow, God's love's amazing. Undiminished, untarnished, undistracted. His is a relentless, awesome love that will always be sustained to the very end. But what does that love actually do? What difference, what difference does it make? You might be pondering. How has Jesus shown that amazing love? And he's, he's done that here in a way that his disciples wouldn't have understood to start with. Jesus even makes that point. It's quite, maybe it's interesting that towards the end of the passage says, 
Jesus says, do you understand what I've just done for you? Partway through in conversation, what does he say to Peter? You don't realize what this is about yet. You will understand later. There's something about what Jesus is doing that will only become clear to them in hindsight. They don't know. They're not aware of anything until verse 4. They are just sitting down or lying down, reclining at a table, having a meal. John's telling us what Jesus knew. John's telling us what's in Jesus' mind. The evening meal was in progress. And Jesus knew, knew what Judas was about to do, knew where he was headed. But the disciples are just caught totally unaware by the events that happened. Because what Jesus did was just properly unthinkable. And so they would have just been aghast, stunned silence as Jesus got up from the table. Let's just think about it in this way, because there's a bigger point that they'll come to understand later, but there's an interesting parallel. Jesus is with his disciples. They're having some food. So Jesus, their Lord and teacher, is in a position of honour, of privilege. He's gathered with his disciples and they're having this meal. And Jesus chooses at that point to get up from where he was, take off his outer clothes, dress himself as a servant, as a, as a slave. And fill this basin with water, get down on his hands and knees, and wash his disciples' muddy feet to cleanse them. And Jesus is saying, what I'm doing, you'll understand, but you won't fully understand till later on. In other words, he's already giving them a way to understand his death. In fact, we could, we could describe all of Jesus' earthly ministry with reference to that meal. Jesus was seated in a position of great privilege. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus got up from that position. The Son of God got up from that position and got down from the privileged position. And they took off the outer garments. So briefly, when Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, or three of them, they see his absolute radiant glory. But Jesus took off that kind of radiant, glowing, awesome glory in human flesh, and he took on the very nature of a servant. He clothed himself just in ordinary, in an ordinary appearance. And then what did he do? He got down and he did, in that situation, what no one else was there to do. Now, maybe in some other mealtime, there would be, there'd be a servant who was appropriately low enough for the task of washing the feet. It wasn't just any old servant even that might do this, but the kind of the lowest of the low. It's understood that you might wash someone's feet, not meaning to point over there to the drummer, sorry. Uh, I'll look for some other reference point. Um, 
in that mealtime, there was no one there. So I don't think we're supposed to think to ourselves, Jesus was kind of stepping down, rolling the eyes, a tad reluctant. Why hasn't one of the other disciples, why, why hasn't one of my other disciples thought to do this? It was unthinkable. Of course, no one was going to do it. Keep your feet away from the table. Everything will just continue. Jesus was doing what was totally, totally radical in doing that. And he was getting down and he was washing the disciples' feet. And what God has come to do for us in Christ is what no one else on this planet, not just prepared to do, but able to do. It's not possible for anyone else to have cleansed us from our sin, from the muck of our sin through living in this world. No one else, was to deal, no one else could deal with it. That was the dilemma. But Jesus, the Son of God, has stepped down, taken on human likeness, becoming a servant in order, in order to cleanse us, in order to, in order to wash us. This is bound to be someone else's favourite verses as well. Uh, you could turn to Philippians, which I've just gone past. Philippians chapter 2. Describing that, the, the downward journey of, of Christ Jesus from that place of greatest privilege. We're told in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself he, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the cross is, is about to happen. He's in a, in a way, he's giving his disciples this this visual object lesson saying this is how you're to understand what is about to happen when I die no one else can do that but this is necessary for me to wash you from sin to make you clean so that you can be around the table with me so that you can be in fellowship with God for that to happen you need to be totally washed so Jesus by washing the disciples feet he's showing just how much he loves his own. He's showing just how much he loves uh, the disciples. He's showing just how much he loves us. And he's showing that love by cleansing, by washing the disciples. A complete, utter cleansing. Peter would come to understand it himself. Um, it doesn't understand it at this point, but he will go on to write 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. There we have Peter expressing his understanding. This had to happen. Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. For us to be in fellowship with God, sin needed to be dealt with. For sin to be dealt with, it had to be somebody righteous. For it to be somebody righteous, it could only be God himself. And so Jesus came um, to sacrifice himself 
in this way for our complete cleansing. We might think at that point, what about those occasions when we continue to sin? We've received this good news, we've received God's love, um, but we're still a bit grubby now and again. And this is perhaps what's revealed by Jesus' conversation uh, with Peter, because Peter objects. He's just thinking at the level of what normally happens in society. This is unthinkable, Jesus. What are you doing? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Interestingly then, Peter flips to the other side. It's not appropriate for you to wash me. Well, wash all of me then. Um, you've got to love a guy who's just all in um, and who dares to speak up in the stunned silence. Not just my feet and my hands and my head, uh, not just my, my feet, but my hands and my head um, as well. Now, Jesus wasn't just looking for a, a way out of an awkward moment. I, I need to wash your feet, but um, I actually don't want to wash all of you. Come on, Peter, let me just crack on with what I was planning already. You know, he's not just trying to navigate an awkward moment, but, but teaching something vital. You know, again, that just goes beyond foot washing. If it's just about washing feet, it's like, no, Peter, you, I, demand, I demand that you require for me to look humble right now, which just seemed like a bit of an odd, odd message. But there is something, there's something deeper uh, going on. Those who have had a bath only... Uh, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. Is that right? They're already clean, Jesus would say elsewhere, because of the word I've spoken to you. You're already clean because you have uh, received me and believed in me. But you still have muddy feet. So we celebrate, as it were, God's total cleansing of us of our sin. The bath, which only needs to happen once. But, sat around the table, it still matters that Jesus doesn't want dirty feet. And so for God's people who've already received the good news in Jesus, you have received that once for all blessing of total complete cleansing and forgiveness now and forever, once and for all. It's happened. It's glorious. It's there. It's an amazing gift. That doesn't allow us to arrive at the point where sin no longer matters. Well, Jesus has taken away my sin, and of course then he, he understands it's, it's inevitable. We live in a dirty, mucky world. As we, as we go about life, we're bound to pick up something we're bound to get a little bit grubby now and again. Well, even if that is the case, to be in fellowship with the King of Kings around the table, we need to be clean. We receive what Jesus has done in that once and for all sense, and we keep coming to him and receiving him when he says, your feet are grubby. Let's wash those. I'm going to wash those as well. 
And our way of cooperating in that moment, like Peter, is, say, is to say effectively, okay, I recognize. I have been washed. In that sense, I'm, I'm accepted. I'm loved. I, I'm at the table, but my feet do need cleaning. And I need to ask you, Lord, for forgiveness for something that happened this week or something that happened this morning. That sin does matter, that there is a place in our discipleship to say, forgive me for my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. That, that is part of the deal. That's part of what's going on, is that Jesus wants a holy people. But Jesus wants a people who are conspicuously, obviously clean. So as we come to him personally and corporately, to his word, to learn from him, to be his disciples, to go from one degree of glory to another, it's not surprising if the Lord just puts his finger on something and we're not to recoil either and say, oh, I just have to clean that up myself or, or, or to think, well, I, hold, I need a whole bath. You don't need to go to either of those extremes, but we do need to visit that place of saying, God, forgive me for that. Forgive me for this. Because Jesus doesn't want muddy feet at the table. Jesus loves us. Jesus washes us. He cleanses us. And Jesus keeps cleansing us. He keeps washing us. So fourthly, what else are we to take from this? Jesus gets to the end of washing all their feet. He puts on his clothes and returns to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Okay, Lord, I think we've understood a fair bit. I think we've understood that you love us. I think we've understood that by your death and resurrection, you've cleansed us completely from sin. And I think we've understood that right in the here and now, it's still necessary and required for us to confess and get cleansed from anything we might have picked up recently because we want to be a holy people who are in fellowship with you, almighty God. What else would you like us to understand? Well, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is leading us to the point of being like him. And if he leads in this way by humbling himself to that extent, that's where he wants to take his disciples. And that is a blessed place for us to go. So there is blessing from God that we will miss out on if all we do is go away thinking, I know God loves me. I know he's cleansed me once and for all from all my sin. And I know we need to get right with him. That knowing all of those things is absolutely vital. But the full blessing only comes when gladly we think, if Jesus washed feet, we have all become foot washers we're all going to follow in his footsteps. We're going to follow his 
example. And we're going to believe by faith that maybe even our understanding of just how much God loves us will grow as we serve one another. Now, I don't know, is foot washing still an unthinkable thing? It would be a bit of a bizarre thing. You can just have a shower. But there's a myriad ways in which we can uh, serve one another. That being, being a follower of Jesus is not about being a spectator. It's strange, really. Sometimes just the language that we use uh, can trip us up. And we might have done this through a fair while of having an online service. It was a, a created online pre-recorded often uh, service. So we, we weren't meeting, so we couldn't call it a meeting, and we had to call it something else. But a service is something that a few people provide to a big group. And the implication then, if we think of this as a service, is that we have come to be served. And maybe in some respects it could be helpful to think in, that, in those terms, if it reminds us as we worship Jesus, that we're worshipping him because of how he has served us. And we need him. And we need that. But we start to trip up if we think of being a church as being a group of service goers, of, of, of church building attenders. And, and it happens, and do you know what? It's utterly pedantic for me to say this. But I think it is necessary. You're not sat in a church. Welcome to the Jubilee Centre. This is the church's house. This is where the church sometimes gets to hang out. But the church is us. The church is a people who've decided to commit together to God and to each other. And being part of a church, therefore, does involve serving. A whole variety of ways. You think what happened here, Jesus didn't even respond to a request or a problem that was posed by somebody else. Jesus, what are we going to do? Because uh, there's no one to serve with the washing of feet. And none of us fancy doing it. Jesus just saw it. Jesus saw the opportunity. Had he premeditated that for weeks and months beforehand, or had he just seen right there in this moment, there's a need and I'm going to step into it. And by the way, this could be quite a powerful way of revealing the significance of what I'm about to do in a couple of days' time. Just saw a need and said, I'm going to serve. It didn't, it, lots of serving in the life of the church doesn't need coordination. It doesn't need a rotor. It, it doesn't need to wait until the request goes out. It's just you and me, by faith, spotting an opportunity. And perhaps no one else has spotted that opportunity. And perhaps that doesn't matter. That we don't need to turn over our shoulder and think, well, someone else should have done this. That there's, that there's incredible humility knowing who he is, knowing where he's come from, knowing who he's destined, where he's destined to go. Jesus, without reluctance, stepped down and just did it. 
And there's to be something of that which just characterizes being a church together. That if we've really understood the wonderful love of Jesus, we won't be rolling our eyes at each other, thinking, well, they don't do much. We'll just be delighted. And if you were to think to yourself, I wish I was part of a church where people served a bit better. Is that not just like totally weirdly ironic? If we come away with the main take home being, I'm going to pray that everyone else serves better. <laughs> Would that not be like the weirdest lesson to learn? But I think in our culture, we can sometimes trip up over this because we, are, we can get just a little bit entitled. I'm entitled to be served. If only this family were a bit more survey, then I'd kind of feel the love and then I might start serving. It just doesn't make any sense. If we, if we all bought into that way of thinking, let's just go home. But let's see with faith opportunities to serve. This is, this is who we are. And Jesus did say, didn't he, according to the book of Acts, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. There will be blessing in our faith-filled attempts uh, to, serve, uh, to serve one another. And you can then also, you can actually also ask the people leading your hub, elders leading the church, how can I serve? And some things are just dull and they're ordinary and they get no accolade unless we make like foot washing into some really freaky kind of like spiritual brownie points moment. Hello, I'm doing it. I'm doing the job that no one wants to. Give me the badge now. Well done. Thank you for serving us. You know, it just all gets a little bit ironic if we're just chasing recognition. If we're chasing a shiny badge. There's just a place, it's like family life. Someone cleans the toilets in your house, okay? Maybe there should be a rotor for that as well. Just a bit of organized coordination. And do you know what? Nobody kind of thinks to themselves, I don't think. What am I most gifted at? What, what has God called me to do? How do you want me to serve, Lord? I couldn't possibly wash the to clean the toilets because God's called me to something else. We are called to do ordinary things in honour of Jesus and to love one another. Now, if you were to come and ask one of us and say, how can I serve? The chances are what we're likely to say is, what do you enjoy doing? What might your gifts be? And so on. So it's not like that's out of the question. And if we were considering how the Holy Spirit does enable us and gift us to do things, there is a place for looking at gifts of the Spirit. But there is no spiritual gift of washing, cleaning the toilet. It's just helping out the family. And giving our, giving our time. Here's a few, other, a few other ideas. This comes from a book uh, written by a guy called Tony Marida called Love Your Church. And he writes, he writes a few pointers. Um, for example, he says, 
be a servant, not a critic. It's easy to argue and criticize, but instead choose another path. Humbly seize opportunities to serve Jesus and his people, even if your service may seem small or insignificant. Welcome a new family to the fellowship. Have students into your home. Give generously to the church. Care for the children in the church. Volunteer for other stuff. He seems to be talking a lot about students. But anyway, um, you are important. We love you. Volunteer for student ministry. Arrange chairs. Volunteer for... No, I've already said that one. Sorry. Uh, play in the band. Serve those who are struggling in your small group. Serve the people of God by being part of one. Serve a refugee family. Take food um, to an elderly saint or tutor a student. He's stuck on students. I've only just spotted that. This is, it's good stuff. If anything sounds strange, it's not me. That's why you quote someone else, by the way, because they can say things that then feel a bit awkward to say personally. It's not me saying it, it's Tony. Um, you are called and gifted to serve, but are you willing to serve the church? Uh, stay in touch with the volunteer needs of your church and offer to serve as you can. <laughs> this is really relevant to City Church, okay? Pay attention to announcements. <laughs> no one said about it. No one said it was happening. We said it three or four times. It's that beginning moment of the meeting as well. No one said it. Um, or other forms of communication. <laughs> this is the message we get to talk about emails. <laughs> Ask your church leaders where the particular needs are and offer to help as you can. Now, it's important you know, that our serving is, is cheerful, it's not reluctant, it's part of our faith, it's being called to be a part of the family. There is opportunity, there are places, there's times to say, even actually stop serving. It, or don't stop thinking about why we serve. Where does this all come from? It comes from the love of, a, of, uh, from the love of God and a wonderful saviour whose multi-dimensional, super-extending love goes in all sorts of directions that crazily blesses us now and forever. If you're forgetting that love, there might be reason to stop serving for a bit, okay? Remember that love. Remember where this has come from. Remember Jesus serving you. This is not tit for tat. This is not paying God back. This is receiving the amazing love of God that cleanses you and has cleansed you if you've received it from all sin for all time. That's where this comes from. This comes from a God who keeps loving you even when you've got grubby feet, when you have messed up when you have wandered off somewhere and come back to your senses and realize, I shouldn't have done it, I shouldn't have gone there, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry, Lord, forgive me. And he just rushes to you again and says, you're totally cleansed. I've totally forgiven you. Now work out what that means in your life, that you don't keep stumbling over the same thing, but you're totally forgiven and I totally love you now and forever. And I'm calling you to serve. That is the good news in the first half of John chapter 13. Let's pray and let's worship God together.